The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 24. We are continuing this week in our series, Holy Reflections. Uh, We're talking about God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. Uh, The last two weeks, we have sought God's wisdom from the scriptures uh, regarding singleness, both lifelong because of God's calling and gifting, and temporary uh, for those who are single because simply they are not yet married. This week, we're going to seek out guidance from the scriptures on the process of finding a spouse. Uh, There are a few areas of human existence, uh, especially in our current cultural context, that have as much confusion and brokenness surrounding them than this. Uh, We're going to look at the most common approach in our day, which most often is referred to as dating, uh, and we're going to weigh it on the scales of God's wisdom to see if for us as God's people, that's the best way to go about things. So this week we're going to talk a lot about motive, we're going to talk a lot about intention, and things leading up. Uh, Next week, we'll get into more practicalities um, and help with uh, godly boundaries, things of that nature, okay? So we're in Genesis 24. Uh, I'm just going to kind of give you the background of of 1 through 9, and then we'll start reading at verse 10. So what we see here is that Abraham is getting old in age, right? Uh, And he's got his son, the son of promise, that's Isaac, and uh, he is wants to begin the process of, of Isaac finding a wife. And so uh, God's promise to Abraham was that uh, through his seed that many nations were going to be blessed. And so, uh, you know, people needed to make babies for that to happen. So Isaac needs a wife. So he calls in his, his head servant, Eliezer. And uh, there's, there's a, a strange custom that I'm really, really glad we got rid of. He tells him, uh, he's laying on his bed there, and he says, come here and put your hand under my thigh. We're about to make an oath. And I'm like, Thank God we shake hands now, right? Like, so glad I'm not sticking my hand under dude's thighs when we need to make a promise. So praise God that uh, culture changes. So uh, he, he, they do that, and he says, listen, uh, I want you to swear to me that you'll, you'll go to the land of my fathers, and you'll find a wife for my son Isaac. I don't want him to marry here, uh, women of the land of Canaan, where God had called him to. He wanted him to go back to uh, his place of origin and find a wife there. Okay, so... Um, Eliezer says, yeah, sure, I'll do that. What if they won't, what if a wife won't come? And Abraham says, well, I think God will bless your journey. And so uh, if, if they refuse totally, you're freed from this uh, under the thigh oath. But uh, he says, I think an angel's going to go with you. God's going to help you and it's going to work out okay. So that's kind of where we pick up the story here. And we're in verse 10, okay? And we're going to read uh, to 27 right now. Then the servant, that's Eleazar, took ten camels uh, from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men... Uh, of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers drink, and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, 
Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no one had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw and drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man gazing at her in silence, meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Amen. Thankful to God for his word. Uh, before we go any farther, I, I want to diffuse some potential bombs here because I think the beauty of these verses could be missed if there was a kind of a misunderstanding of, of what exactly we're seeing here. Um, <clears throat> I think some people would be aghast if they, if they don't read this chapter carefully uh, because some would see Abraham's instructions to his servant as some sort of racism against the women of the land of Canaan, uh, that he had a problem with their race. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, some could also think that this was uh, an incident that was the case with many ancient marriage traditions, that Rebecca was simply being bought or traded like a commodity. Uh, that's, that's also not the case. So um, <clears throat> first of all, let's deal with why was Abraham so adamant to Eliezer that he go back to uh, the land of his fathers and, not, and that Isaac not marry from the land of Canaan? What did that have to do with? Okay. So if, if, you, if you continue to read, and I, and I hope that all of you can later, go back and read the entirety of Genesis 24. Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story all the way through. Um, but picking up where we left off, so essentially what happens is he does go meet Rebecca's family, and then he ends up recounting to them the story of how he walked up to town, prayed this prayer to God. Before he had finished speaking, God answers the prayer uh, and kind of lays out for them this this really miraculous event where uh, he asks for something really specific that, I mean, would be kind of scary to do. That's, that's going to whittle it down quite a bit, right? Not only will she allow me to have a drink, but also is willing to water my camels, which, of course, we know was at least an hour of very hard, laborious work because of how many camels he had, how much camels drink. Uh, and we're not talking about turning on a tap, filling a bucket, and pouring it in. We're talking about really hard work down into the well and back up and so uh, he, he's kind of given the Lord this, this difficult thing in, in asking, uh, may the girl who not only lets me have a drink, but also offers to water my camel. So it, it's, it's pretty undeniable that God's in the mix. And so um, Eliezer kind of recounts that to the family. And then we see uh, in verse 50, the response of Rebecca's family. So I'm just going to read that to you, okay? Then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. 
and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So why does verse 50 answer the issue of, is Abraham being racist and sending Eleazar away from the, the women of Canaan back to his own homeland? It had everything to do, Abraham's concern was not with who the women of Canaan were, but who they worshipped. Because how did this end up going, right? Eleazar shows up and he's looking for God's blessing upon a specific woman as Isaac's wife. And so it, this story would have gone a lot different. Imagine Eleazar trying to uh, explain this story to someone who worships Molech instead of the God of the universe, right? Well, God showed up and I, I prayed this thing and before I was done speaking, they're going to say, we don't care because <laughs> we don't serve your God or believe he exists, right? So really what Abraham's concern was, was that uh, Eleazar be dealing with people that at least worship the same God they did. And so it's not about who they were, it's about who they worshiped. And so it, it wasn't a matter of racism, it's about the fact that he wanted Isaac to marry someone that would acknowledge the same God that they were serving, uh, which is obviously wise and echoes throughout the rest of the scriptures as far as how we're instructed to look for a spouse. So that's what's going on there. Secondly, um, the, the, the question of, and, and it even verse, verse 50 and 51, 51 specifically, it says, here is Rebecca before you, take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Okay, I, I, can, I can anticipate a little bit of bristling um, from some of the ladies because it's like, hold on a second. What, what's, what's the deal with dudes saying, yeah, take her and she'll be the wife and that's kind of how it goes. Uh, it, it could seem like how it was for many, many ancient cultures where the woman involved had little to no say. Somebody showed up with golden bracelets, said, hey, we got more. <laughs> what's up? I like your daughter. <laughs> Can we make something happen here, right? Which is kind of a bummer. So it's, it's really a bummer. Let me not say kind of. I don't want to be quoted wrong on that. That's a real bummer, okay? Um, now, if you're sitting here saying, you know, guy shows up with gold bracelets, okay, stop, all right? They call that a gold digger, all right? Don't do that. Don't be that, ladies. Okay, so how, how do I know that that's not what's going on here? Okay, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read through. Um, I didn't give this to them because it's a lot of verses to try to track. So just listen to me. I'm going to read this to you, and I'll point out to you why I know that's not what's happening. So I'm, I'm going to just read through verse 52 right after he says, um, okay, go ahead, take her. Let her be the wife of your master's son. So when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days. Say 10, afterwards she may go. He said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, mounted the camels, followed the man, and so the servant took Rebekah and departed. Okay, so what do we see there? We see a breaking from what was commonly done in that time Whereas all of this transaction would have just happened between Abraham's servant and the dad and maybe the brothers. Mom might have been involved because she's probably hoping for a bracelet too, right? So most of the time this would have been a lot more transactional. 
And really, Rebecca wouldn't have had a lot of say. And so and the other thing we need to remember is in the scope of, of the history of God dealing with his people, we're, we're right towards the beginning, right? We're dealing with Abraham, right? Kind of the first guy that, that really by faith believes God and kind of kicks this thing off because it's, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob, his sons, and then on down through history, right? So it's kind of, we're seeing one of the first times where God being in the mix of this thing affects the way, I believe, the woman was treated in this situation. I don't think God would have been happy about Abraham's servant showing up and just saying, hey, I like her. Here's some gold. You come with me, right? What did they do? They said, well, let's call Rebecca in and see how she feels. Let's consult her wishes. And they said, Rebecca, do you want to go? Yeah, I want to go. Praise God. Okay, so two things. I just want to disarm two bombs so that you don't miss the rest of what we're going on because you're maybe stewing over something that is a misunderstanding, right? The first one is Abraham wasn't a racist. He just wanted Isaac to marry someone that was going to acknowledge the God of the universe. Two, um, this is not, uh, this is an example, I think, of, of God beginning to, to break some, some harmful man-made traditions of women being treated with disrespect and more like a commodity than a person, okay? And so that's a good thing. Praise God for that. All right, amen. <clears throat> I thought you'd like that better. So there's going to be stuff I don't think you're going to like later, so I was really hoping for like a good start there. All right. And then a brother says woohoo. None of the chicks did, right? <laughs> like, that was your time, ladies. Okay. You had your chance. Here we go. Um, amen. So if you're a man, you may be thinking, okay, so we're talking about how to find a spouse, we're talking about dating, we're talking about issues surrounding that. And if you're sitting here, you just went through the scriptures with us and you're wondering where I'm going, you might be thinking, if you're a guy, <clears throat> uh, my dad doesn't have any servants to send out to find me a wife, right? And if you're a woman, you might be thinking, I have not had the opportunity to water any camels lately. So how is it that this is going to apply to me? Um, I, I don't want the ladies to leave here, find a bucket and a well and hang out hoping for the best. Um, and and uh, I know most of your dads don't, don't have a servant to, to send down to Florida to find you a, you know, a sun-kissed Floridian girl, okay? So um, I understand that. However, customs and traditions and cultures do shape the process for finding a spouse, but there are certain godly principles that transcend the difference in traditions. And so that's what we're going to draw out today. Godly principles that transcend tradition, transcend cultural context, they're true, kind of no matter what the current landscape looks like as it pertains to finding a spouse, okay? So, what do we see? The first thing we see, uh, and honestly, there's, this will not be exhaustive, as I often say, there's many more principles and good things we could draw out of this, but you got to whittle it down. So, based on what we're going to deal with this week and then next week, we're going to focus in on, on a few things here. So, the first thing I want to point out to you is that Abraham did not send Eleazar to find Isaac a girlfriend. He sent him to find him a wife. As you begin to look to the scriptures, as I hope most of you are, to find out how it is God looks at the process of finding a spouse, you will see that references to or scriptures for applying to our current system of dating are pretty conspicuously missing. You can go through all the scriptures. You're not going to find a reference to the way most people do it right now. Dating. The way most people do dating right now. Um, it, it, the Bible doesn't really know of it. It's, it's, that's not the way things were done then. So 
we're going to have to work a little harder to find principles that we can apply to kind of what things look like now, but then also question where we're at and why we're here and should we be, should it look like it looks right now? So to think through that, I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that dating as we see it today, dating as it's done widely today, is in, in, the, in the scope of history, it's, it's just kind of a blip on the timeline a hundred years, maybe a little bit more than that, is the first time people even began to, uh, as two people interested in each other, go out somewhere and go into public and, and hang out by themselves doing whatever uh, social activities it was or whatever. That, that just wasn't done before the late 1800s, mostly as it transitioned in the 1900s. Um, the way it happened before that most often was, it was inside the context of the uh, girl's home who the guy was interested in. He would come, hang out with the family. Most of the time the brothers were there. Uh, dad was there. <laughs> and, uh, they, you know, there, a lot of times houses would have a parlor. Sometimes it would be small, but there'd be a place where they could be. But there was people within earshot and eyeshot. Uh, they weren't left alone to just kind of, you know, Whatever happens, happens, and, and it would happen in the home. There would be safety there. There would be protection and covering for the girl and accountability for everybody involved. Um, and and that, that whole system had a, had a different name. Um, it, it was known as courtship. And so dating didn't really come on the scene until really... There were some cultural shifts that played into it. Early 1900s, people began to move into cities more so, and there, so there was dense urban populations, um, and so there wasn't as much uh, of a, of a you know, family estate, and the guy comes over, and, and kind of that deal, there was apartments and stuff like that, so people felt like they had to kind of get out of the, the tightness of that to get to know each other, and so there was that. Uh, the, of course, the vehicle, you know, cars coming on the scene actually had a huge impact on this, um, and then you, as you move closer towards um, right before World War II, uh, there's, there was, there's documented, um, there's books written, there's articles and magazines, you can research this stuff, and I would, I would suggest that you do. Just Google the history of dating. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of material. So uh, there was an idea on, so what it looked like more so, a lot of times on college campuses and stuff like that, right before World War II, it, it Dating had almost become, it wasn't even as much about sex and marriage. It was, it was more of a popularity contest. And as I tell you these things, you'll kind of see that there's whisperings of these things left sometimes in the way we think about it. So it was actually thought of, you know, people, the way kind of social status was dictated a lot of times was by how many times, how many people you could date, sometimes even multiple people in a day. But it wasn't so much driven by sexuality or even a potential for marriage. It was just about if you're a girl and a bunch of guys wanted to take you out on dates, then you were thumbs up, right? And vice versa. If you were a guy that could get a bunch of girls to go with you on dates. And so it literally it became a part of the social fabric. Like your, your coolness level, late 30s, a lot of times in that age bracket was dictated by how many people you could go on a date with. Um, it's interesting. According to a cultural historian named Beth Bailey, who's done a lot of work on this, the word date was probably originally used as a lower class slang word for booking an appointment with a prostitute. However, by the turn of the 20th century, we find the word being used to describe lower-class men and women going out socially to public dances, parties, and other meeting places. You have to kind of think about, 
It wasn't until the late 1800s, early 1900s, industrialization starts to grab hold. Cities become a place that people are flocking to where there was even a lot of these things available. Public dances, theaters, stuff like that. More, uh, more of a social and entertainment industry that didn't even really exist before that. Um, because until people started flocking to cities and, and all of that going on, um, a lot of people lived a rural lifestyle where it was like we were on the grind if the sun was up because if, if the farm doesn't do good, we die. So, you know... Wasn't really worried about catching a movie or, you know, going to a play or whatever else. So, uh, and, and to some degree, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not glorifying that. You know, there was, I, I think there was many times, especially early colonization of America, there was really too much of a utilitarian approach to marriage. It was kind of like guys would go try to find a girl that looked like she could give him a bunch of sons because a bunch of sons were going to help him make the farm go good. So that's also kind of a bummer <laughs> overcorrection. So... Um, I'm not trying to over-glorify that, and, and, and I'm not saying that courtship wasn't without its sinful possibilities. Um, even uh, Benjamin Franklin accounted that one of the first uh, women that he was interested in and, and went to her house and talked to her dad and her parents and uh, was trying to get to know her, explore the possibility for marriage, <clears throat> uh, said that her parents, kind of with a wink-wink type deal, encouraged him to kind of mess around with her. Um, and so you, you might be thinking, well, what kind of parent would do that? Well, a parent that really wants their daughter to get married to a guy that they think has potential might think that guy's going to be more motivated to pick their daughter if, you know, they fool around a little bit and he gets connected to her. And so that's really sad and pitiful, but doesn't, human sin can corrupt any system. So I'm not trying to elevate one above the other necessarily. I'm just saying that um, we... Everybody, I'm assuming, here, unless you were born before World War II, um, and some of you may have been, but even before that, unless you were born in the 1800s, dating has kind of been just the way we've seen it done. It's, it's morphed and it's transformed and it's changed even rapidly in the last couple decades, but it is, it is what we've seen. It is the way we've mostly seen it done. And so I, I think it's easy for us to just kind of assume that's the only option. And so uh, that isn't necessarily the case. And so the other thing I would say to you is I, I do think that something closer to what courtship should look like fits a biblical model and wisdom for how to approach this. So what do I mean by that? I think that it's fairly dangerous in most cases for a red-blooded male and a red-blooded female who are attracted to each other to consistently go out by themselves and put themselves in situations where they may be tempted. Um, and I think that there's reasons why early on um, parents were involved. Also, you take a look at this. I'm not saying, again, I know Guys, your dad isn't going to send his servant full of camels with gold bracelets, but you see to some degree there was this idea of, of parental involvement. And I think that's because, let's be honest, anybody who's ever been in the process of searching for a spouse, there can be confusion, there can be difficulty, there can be really big blind spots for us when we're working through that. And so I realize for some people, courtship looking like... Um, you know, you're only getting to know each other in the context of being around your family and stuff. Some of that, some, sometimes that doesn't work because some of you don't have Christian families. Some of you don't 
some of you ladies don't have dads that give a rip, and, and that's really terrible. Um, so, some, for some people, that situation just wouldn't work out. However, I, I'm just going to say to you, if you talk to Lucy about it, she knows that daddy's going to help her find a husband. And I don't mean that in a weird, cultish, over-controlling way, but I'm, I'm going to be involved in the process. I'm not just going to send her out on her own. Well, do your best, honey. Hope, hope, hope it works out. I'm going to meet the guy. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> right? And I'm, he's not going to show up and, and take her and, and go do whatever. Right? Because I think, you know, sometimes we trust ourselves too much and we have an overinflated view of how much self-discipline we have. And so even if his intentions are pure as the driven snow, um, which they better be, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm not that old that I don't remember what it's like. Uh, and there is, when it comes to temptations, there are few stronger than the temptations that come along with things regarding sexuality. And so, um, and, and, and all of that's important, not because uh, we're just archaic people that uh, believe this, this cranky God and all his rules need to be followed. It's because most of us, if we, if we really are honest, take a look around at the result of kind of a lackadaisical approach to sexuality, just kind of anything goes, whenever, whatever, the free love movement, all that type of deal. Let's, let's take a look. Let's like count the cost of all of that mindset. Let's take a look at where that's left us as a people and see if it's helped. I think if we really take a look at it, it hasn't helped at all. It's hurt a lot. And God never ever sets parameters unless they're for our good. And so we have to think about that. There's reasons why God has said certain things belong in certain parameters, right? And so as far as sexuality concern is concerned, it belongs within the parameters of covenant marriage because that's the only place it's safe. It's like fire. In a fireplace, it's great. It'll keep you warm. You can roast your marshmallows. You can have a, a fun old time. But if the fire comes out of the fireplace... It'll burn you, and it'll kill you, okay? It, a good thing becomes a bad thing. And so God has established these parameters, and, and covenant is the only place, and we'll get into that more as we go throughout the series, but covenant is the only place where God has established that sexuality for humans is a safe thing. Because, and you're going to hear me say this more as we go through this, I'm not going to expound on it now, I'm just going to drop this seed for you to think about. Part of our problem is we have simultaneously overemphasize sex and underemphasize sex. We've done both at the same time. It's overemphasized in the way that you can't drive down the street without seeing some product trying to be sold by some type of at least sexual innuendo, if not overt presentation of buy this and it'll make you more sexually attractive, right? It's like and somehow it still works. Uh, so we've overemphasized in our culture sexuality and almost treated it as a god, but at the same time we've underemphasized it and we've desacralized it and we treat it like it's simply a physical act for the pleasure of two humans, and that's not the way the Bible teaches. That sex is a much deeper thing, that it has spiritual implications, emotional ramifications. And so and, uh, <clears throat> most people with any experience whatsoever surrounding these things can vouch for that fact. So... Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and say this. It, it'll be unpopular with some of you, and I'm okay with that. Because um, I know like the, the, the hippest and most cutting-edge things to say on this subject would, would dis, I think, disagree with me. But uh, it, it's, it's been much hipper, especially in the last five years, to refer to the process of a Christian pursuing a spouse, to just put Christian in front of dating, 
and, and call it good. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to hang out or camp on this or, or make it a big deal. I'm just going to tell you my personal preference and why, and you can do with it what you want. I, I think it matters, and I think it's helpful for Christians to use different language than what everyone else is using because I just, I, I firmly believe and, and, I, and I know this in an objective way that when you say dating, there are certain expectations in our culture. If you tell somebody in our culture, I'm dating this person, there are certain things they believe go along with that. It's just true. And so I personally think using the language, and you could pick, I mean, you can make up a word, do whatever you want, but the word's kind of already there, and it does to some degree describe what I think is a wiser, safer approach. I, I, I believe that courtship is a better word to use. Now, you don't have to do that, but I will say this. Most people that have pushed back against me on that and said, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. Okay, I get that, but most of the time, if I can really poke you hard enough, what I find out is you don't want to use the word courtship because then it makes it weird for you to have conversations with people because you don't want to say, I'm, I'm courting this person or we're in a courtship relationship because people go, what? Is that dating? What is that? And then it's like, oh, right? No, I have awkwardness. But I, I would just propose to you that as a mission-minded Christian that wants to uh, reflect God's goodness through any relational pursuit you have and, and in all of your life, that having a distinction that causes a conversation is actually a good thing and not a bad thing. For you to say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm in a courtship relationship with this person, and they say, what, what's that? That sounds old and weird. You're like, well, let me, t <laughs> let me tell you what it is. Actually, what it is, it's, it's, it's a gospel-focused, God-focused pursuit of, of the possibility of marriage. And so here's what it looks like. Here's how it's distinguished a little bit from what everyone else is doing because I'm a Christian and, and I believe God loves me and he's put certain things that are, that are wise out there for me to consider and to implement. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't say dating because I don't. when I say dating, I don't want you to automatically assume all the things that come along with, with a typical dating relationship in our current cultural context, right? Because there, there, are, there are expectations. I don't, I don't really care. That argument, I, I don't know if somebody could, could stand up and have, that people don't assume certain things when you say you're dating someone. Um, and so I think using that different language not only distinguishes it in your own mind and helps you remember not to just fall directly into what the rest of the culture is doing, but also gives you gospel opportunities to explain, hey, yeah, I, I do live my life different. Um, and, and it has everything to do with all of my life, but especially relationships. And so here's how that looks different, right? We're, we're not sexually active um, because we believe that's reserved for marriage and that's honoring to God and that's building a solid foundation for us to have, if God does allow us to be married and, and enter into that covenant, that we're not gonna be building up with a messed up, cracked foundation, right, moving into it. So um, tracking dating's history, its longevity, and its results I'm not a huge fan of it. Listen, if you want to say Christian dating because you're terrified <laughs> to say courtship, I'm, I'm not going to harp on that. That's not going to be something we're going to have a big argument about. I just wanted to humbly submit to you where I stand about it. I realize some of you will disagree. I realize there's plenty of Christian magazines that disagree, um, but that's my case, so do with that what you will, okay? And I love you. Um, okay, so the first thing we see is that he didn't send him to find a girlfriend. He sent him to find a wife, okay? And so that speaks to the larger per per point that we're going to be making throughout this sermon is that intention and intentionality matters much when it comes to uh, relationships. Um, 
courtship, dating, things of that nature, okay? So here's the second thing we see. It matters who you marry. Now, I'm not, I don't normally have, I don't normally leave as much ambiguity as I'm going to about these two things, right? So I said that I, I believe courtship's a wiser approach and, and that language matters. Um, I'm going to leave that for you to decide. Also, there's another big debate that comes up in what I just said that I'm there. You can believe two different ways about this and be a faithful Christian, and, and I can understand how you could get to either one. Okay, so I just want to call it out, say it. I want to tell you where I'm at, but let you know you, you have the freedom to stand on the other side of the fence on this, and it's, it's definitely not a heaven or hell issue. Uh, it's, it's a wide open hand issue. Okay, so many, uh, some people believe that there is one person that God would have you to marry. Um, and a lot of people believe that uh, essentially if, if you, that God's given some parameters about who a Christian can marry, and within that you can kind of choose, right? So they, they need to be a Christian. Um, you know, that, that's kind of it. <laughs> that's, that's the big deal. Uh, they need to follow God, right? So um, a strain for another one there. It's like, well, there isn't any. So um, that, that's kind of the deal. So it's, it's either you, you, you kind of believe God has one person for you or you believe that as, as long as they serve God and, and are you know, uh, on, on the same gospel track you are, then, then that's okay. So um, I, I'll just go ahead and tell you that because of these verses, this story, and several other things I see in the scriptures, uh, specifically kind of the way this breaks down. Eliezer shows up, says, hey God, I really need you to help me out. I want to help my master Abraham here. Uh, so the girl that not only allows me to drink, but also offers to water my camels as well, here's the language he uses, may she be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. I don't know any other way to interpret this story other than God had appointed Rebecca for Isaac. Okay, so that's one thing. And then kind of the rest of the way I see the sovereignty of God and, and the fact that to, to what degree he cares about the details of our life. I mean, guys, I don't, you know, I don't think, I don't think God's super opinionated on whether you have Rice Krispies or Cheerios for breakfast, right? I think you're kind of free, you know, whichever one, they both got good grains in there. Um, <laughs> it's like, I think, I think it's cool. Um, either way. But there, there's some big things, man. Um, like, you know, what church community and church family you're a part of, I think that's a, a sovereign directive. And I, I just happen to think that minimally, I, I just can't imagine in all that I understand about the way God works, him not having an opinion about who you marry. And so you can see that as determinative or not, but ultimately that's just the way I see it. Um, and so I, I, I do think ultimately, and there's different ways you could phrase this or say it, but it's all just kind of... Um, semantics at that point, um, I, I do believe ultimately that, that Natalie was supposed to be my wife. I believe Rebecca was supposed to be Isaac's wife, okay? So you, you can definitely stand on the other side of that, and, and I've had the discussions with some of you of why you're there, and I understand it, and I think ultimately if we could really drill down all the way, you, you almost kind of believe the same thing. I, I don't know anybody that doesn't think God knows who you're going to marry, and so to some degree that's kind of there, and then how do you deal with that? But then you start to think about God's foreknowledge, and your brain melts, and you know you end up just saying, "God, I worship you because you're awesome," and I'm glad you have a plan, right? So that's that's where I end up on that. So there you go. Uh, do with that what you will. But here, I, I, I want to give you this premise: either way you believe about whether there's one person for you or multiple options within godly parameters, it matters greatly who you marry. That is undeniable throughout the scriptures. 
It matters greatly. From a practical sense, Proverbs has all kinds of warnings about, like, you know, marry the wrong kind of person and your life's going to be miserable, right? There's going to be men, like, sleeping on the corner of their roof because their wife's like a constant dripping faucet. There's words like that. Uh, Wives married to men that are quick-tempered are going to have just a terrible time. And so there's all kinds of warnings. It matters greatly who you marry from a practical sense, but also from a large God's redemptive plan and purposes widely, but also in your life, right? It it super-duper matters that Isaac marries Rebekah. Why? Well, because from that marriage comes Jacob and Esau. It super-duper matters that Jacob marries Rachel, Leah, right? And that, you know, then it gets kind of weird, and we're not going to get into that, but it ends up he has 12 sons out of that, right? That's really super important, and that Joseph is one of those sons, that he goes to Egypt, becomes the viceroy, is able to save his people in the time of famine, right? That they're there for 400 years, then they come out of there. Super important that all of that went down just like it did, because that's how God then pulled his people out of Egypt, and the redemptive story flows on. We dealt with that some uh, last week as well, talking about Ruth and Boaz. It really, really mattered that they got together, that they had a son who had a son who then had a son named David, right? Okay, so we need to see this. I think, the, I think why a lot of people um, divert away from the idea of there being one person uh, for you or, or one person for them is, is because it, it causes fear and anxiety. Like, it, it almost freezes people and paralyzes them in place. Well, what if this isn't the one? And it's, ultimately, man, if, if God is sovereign enough to do all that he's done, he's sovereign enough to to do that as well, right? To, to get that situation right. If your greatest desire is to do his will, to follow after him, he's going to lead you and guide you, and he's going to close and open doors as necessary to, to get you to the right place, right? So uh, it, it shouldn't be a paralyzing thing. To me, it's a very comforting thing. Uh, every part of his plan that he's thought about it and he's out ahead of me gives me really, really great comfort, and I'm, and I'm glad that he does it. So um, don't, don't be paralyzed by that idea. Um, because, I mean, you could, you could be paralyzed believing the other way, right? Like, well, what if this person's just acting like a Christian? And what, how do I really know? And, right? and so that's why some of the other things that we're going to talk about come into play as far as accountability and community being involved in the process, right? Especially for some of you where family isn't, just isn't going to be a vibrant part. Um, for some of you, it's not going to be like it's going to be for Lucy. And I know that. Um, and, but God has given us... Uh, Christian community. He's given us church family. He's given us friends that can be eyes and ears, that can be a source of accountability and protection and a, and a, and a loving voice that'll fill in blind spots because there's a reason why people say love is blind. I, I don't like that statement because it's, you know, kind of derogatory towards love and probably based out of a misunderstanding of it, but there's a reason people say that. You know why they say that, right? Because when you start getting romantic feelings, you can go deaf and blind, right? Like common sense melts out of your brain, and sometimes you do stuff, say stuff, and, and get involved in stuff that you wouldn't normally otherwise. So uh, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But the bottom line here is, is, is it does matter who you marry. So I'm not saying that to promote, I'm not trying to promote the God only has one person for you, though that is what I believe. What I'm trying to promote is it matters who you marry, and so intentionality matters. This can't be a whimsical flippant thing. Like, it's a, it's a big deal. And so there needs to be prayerful caution in the way we approach these things. There needs to be a lot of um, prayer and a lot of, uh, cons- you know, considering God's wisdom about it. And there needs to be involvement of people that love you and also love Jesus that can, that can be helpful and a part of the process, okay? So, it matters who you marry. Um, 
one question that comes up in, in that vein of thought is, should I pursue a friendship with someone looking towards the possibility of marriage if I'm not attracted to them? That's a question I've often heard, uh, and it's commonly posed. First thing I want to point out here is <clears throat> what Eleazar prayed. Okay, So he comes up to the city, camels kneel down, he's praying to God, asking for him to show him uh, a, a woman that he's appointed to, to marry Isaac. And, and what does he pray? I, he, he doesn't pray about eye color, he doesn't pray about hair color, he doesn't pray about dimensions, right? Doesn't, none of that. What does he pray about? He says, God, may the one who not only in a hospitable, servant-like way allows me to drink some of the water that she just worked hard to pull out, but then also offers to water my camels, which is going to be an incredibly arduous task and is going to show without the shadow of a doubt that this is a girl that has a servant's heart, that has the love of God in her heart, and that is willing to, to serve and be hospitable. I think it's interesting what we see him pray, what he focuses in on first. Now, the scriptures do mention later on that Rebecca is beautiful, but that you just find that out later after she comes and God answers the prayer by seeing that she is a, a godly woman, a, a loving woman, a servant-hearted woman. These are the things that Eleazar was looking for. These are the things that he asked God to uh, use to show him uh, who it is he should talk to. So, uh, But I'm going to go ahead and say this. <clears throat> Even in light of all that, should you pursue a friendship, exploring the possibility of marriage, which I think is a definition for courtship. I may have skipped over that. When I think about courtship, it's, it's developing a friendship with someone, looking into the possibility, exploring the possibility of marriage with them, which changes the dynamic of a whole lot of things. It takes a lot of pressure out, and it puts a lot of beautiful elements into it uh, that aren't there in a classic dating situation, okay? Um, Should you pursue a friendship with someone you're not attracted to? Probably not. Probably not. And you probably didn't expect me to say that, but I'm going to qualify it, okay? I'm going to push on it a little bit. Probably not, but we need to push ourselves to assess what drives our attractions, okay? So if there's a godly woman or a godly man that... It, exemplifies kind of what Eleazar was looking for. It's somebody that's devoted to their family, that is a servant's heart, that, that has the fruit of a godly disposition. Um, if that's going on, why aren't you attracted, right? But So what are we talking about? We're talking about should you pursue somebody that you're not attracted to? Probably not. But I think you also, friend, need to check yourself about why and what drives your attractions, what are you attracted to? If you were coming up to the city gate looking for a spouse, what would you be praying to God about, right? What's your list look like, right? Is there dimensions on there? And I'm not saying there can't be. I'm not saying there can't be, but, but they should be way down, way down the list of priorities. Way up at the top should be things like, Lord, I want them to love you genuinely with the deepest part of their heart. I want them to be committed to living their entire life fulfilling your will and being on gospel mission. These, these are the things that should be at the top, and you'll be surprised who ends up being attractive when your attractions are dictated by the right things. So don't just let yourself off the hook with not in, in a question of, is that person somebody I could pursue? Well, I'm not attracted to them. Well, is, 
are physical things the things that dictate your attractions the most? Should they be? I'm not saying it's not a factor. It is. I'm not ignorant. You're not ignorant. If I tried to convince you of that, we'd all laugh later, right? It's a factor. But you'd be surprised how much somebody's physical features, how, how attractive they can be even if... Because let's be honest, man. Beauty is subjective, is it not? It absolutely is. You might say, well, there are certain things that are objectively true for all, all peoples, but that's not right. Because ultimately... <clears throat> Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So what is dictating your eye? What, what do you see as beautiful? And you'll, you'll find that somebody with, with godly character, somebody that has the, the, the spirit of the living God working through them and in them, somebody that is just completely enveloped in the power of God's Holy Spirit and, and exudes his love and goodness and is, is, is a holy person pursuing after the Lord, you'll, you'll see that uh, your eye will change. It absolutely can and will. And so just be careful about that whole idea. Um, because some people are quick to say, just in kind of a practical way, no, you shouldn't pursue somebody you're not physically attracted to. And, and the, the reality is, and part of why they're saying that is because once you get to the marriage part, right, there, there are now expectations of providing for each other's sexual needs, things of that nature. So if there's zero physical attraction there, then, then that could be an issue. But we shouldn't just let ourselves off the hook so easy. We should push in and find out what's driving the attractions. Why do I find what I find attractive or not? Right? Is that okay? Yeah. All right, good. Thank you. I got one brother, one witness. Thank you, my friend. You guys get what I'm saying at least? You understand? Even if you disagree, do you understand? Okay. All right, good. Godly character is way more important than sexual attraction. And sexual attraction should be based more on godly character than physical attraction. You got that? So when we say physical attraction, really what we mean is sexual attraction. Let's just be honest. Are you sexually attracted to that person? So what should drive that? Based on this story, I think based on the harmony of what the scriptures would say, a godly character should be more attractive to us than, than physical appearance and the things that normally drive physical attraction. It's great if all of that's together, and sometimes it is. Um, but, but what should the priority be, okay? So, it matters who you marry, um, and it matters why you marry who you marry, um, and it matters how you look for somebody that's a possibility to start a friendship with to see if you can marry them. Got all that? Good. The third thing we see, why we seek relationships matters, right? I told you, next week will be more fun. More of you will be irritated next week, so it'll be more fun for me, but... Um, we're going to get into more of the practicalities. I know some of the questions you guys have regarding this stuff, and we are going to get to it, but, but we would do ourselves a great disservice jumping to that stuff and not dealing with motive first, not dealing with these deep things first, heart matters first, um, how it is we even get to the point where we're asking about boundaries and other things, okay? So we've got to talk about this stuff because uh, it really, really matters. Because if you, even if you get into a relationship and do the right things, if you got into it for the wrong reasons busted, right? It's broke from the jump. And that's a bummer. Okay, the third thing we see, why we seek relationships matters. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some bad reasons to start a relationship with somebody. Uh, first, you feel bored. <laughs> that's a bad reason to start a relationship with somebody. There's very little intentionality behind that. Um, when, when you see the vast number of people who are broken and hurting as a result of not being intentional with relationships, it should make us walk towards 
that process the same way you would a minefield, prayerfully and carefully, right? Like if, if you needed to get somewhere and there's a minefield in between you and the destination, I mean, do you, would, would, you, would you step into that the way many people step into a relationship? Is that, is that what we're doing through the minefield? Log rolls, and I'm just having a great old time. No, man, if I have to go through that minefield, first of all, I'm going to try to figure out if I don't have to. Can I go around? Is there another way? But if i got to walk through that thing, I'm going real slow, and I'm going to be praying the whole time. <laughs> Prayerful and careful is the way I'm going to approach that. And if we take a look at the wasteland that is all the broken hearts and broken people that have just entered into multiple relationships with frivolity and, and apathy and no consideration whatsoever for why they're doing it. They're bored or whatever it is. And, and the brokenness that comes from that, we would understand. What I'm trying to say with, with, the, with, the, with the poorly constructed joke is the stakes are high. And sometimes we act like it's not. Sometimes we act like it's no big deal. Well, I'm, I'm bored. I'll get with this person if it, whatever it does, la da da. No, man. There's, there's a reason why it's damaging to, to over and over again make emotional connections with people and then break those off, right? Let me, let me, let me get to know you. Let me get emotionally connected to you. Let's, let's share deep secrets. Let's, let's begin to do a lot of the things that married people do, and then, but there's no commitment. There's no covenant. We're not even really thinking about that. We're just kind of doing whatever we feel like doing. And, and there, because we're not even thinking about marriage as a possibility, that's not even why we're doing this. We're just bored. This is a form of entertainment to make these deep emotional connections. And so we know they're going to be severed at some point, but then we go ahead and sever those, and then we do that over and over again. It, it sounds like really good practice for divorce, which could be potentially why that is such an easy option for people today, largely. I'm not trying to come down hard on anybody that may have suffered the tragedy of a divorce for whatever various reasons. I'm just saying we need to look at they're a lot more prevalent today than they used to be. Could the fact that the way we go into marriages with less care, with less prayer, with less purpose, uh, the fact that we approach romantic relationships as if it's just a form of entertainment, could that be at least part of how we've ended up having a culture where marriage is almost treated like, I'll stick with it till it's not convenient? God's meant more for it than that. He's used the word covenant to describe it, and so we need to understand that um, moving towards it or acting, in, in, you know, pretending like you're acting that way or heading towards it is, is not helpful. And then, and then breaking that off again and again, it's, it's, it doesn't do good things for the human heart. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, um, and I'm sure most of us can at least understand it to some degree. So, uh, feeling bored or needing to have some form of entertainment, entering a relationship for that reason is a bad idea. Here's another one. If you feel lonely, uh, feeling lonely is not a good reason to start a romantic relationship because um, you're going to go into the thing looking for a human person to fill a need that only God can fill. Because ultimately, there are many, many people that can be, they can be in a room full of people and be feeling totally lonely. And that's because something's broken in the heart. And King Jesus is the only one that fixes hearts. And, and it is very tragic how many people can spend the entirety of their lives continually trying to shove something in there that will fix this pain, and it never works. And, and they just end up staying broken the whole time. Um, 
that's a shame and that's tragic and, and that will happen if you try to cure this sense of loneliness by bringing another broken, sinful human into it. No human can cure your loneliness. Now, can being married provide companionship? Is that a part of the beautiful gift package that you get that, that the Lord has given us in marriage? Yes, for sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee you not being lonely. It's not going to solve that deep sense of loneliness that comes from being separated from the God that made us. That can only be fixed by getting right with the God that made us and being in relationship with him. Okay? So feeling lonely, not a good reason to start a relationship. You feel broken for the same reasons that it's not a good idea if you feel lonely. It's not a good idea if you feel broken. I'm sad. I mean, I've... You, you, guys, you guys hear the stuff and watch the TV shows, and, and you probably know people that, that actually have thought this way. I feel sad. I feel broken. I feel depressed. I've got whatever it is, these issues. Um, I just need to be with somebody. I need to get with somebody. That would help me feel better. And it seems like it would, right? Because it answers insecurities. Because if you can get with somebody, just like the people in the 30s, it's, it, it, to some degree in our, in, our, in our psychology, it tells us, okay, well, I have worth, or somebody wants me. Or, and so it does, that, it does feel good from that sense, but it's temporary and it's fleeting, and it ends up leaving you more broken at the end. Okay, so don't seek out romantic relationships. Don't seek out the process of... And, and, that's, and that's the whole thing. If, if you're getting in a relationship because you feel lonely or because you feel broken, like you're, you're way far back in, in the steps of even the real intention of, of starting a relationship like that. If there's no thought of marriage on the horizon, if you're not in a place spiritually and in the rest of your life where you say, yes, I believe that in this season I could marry somebody, that I could give my life to somebody in, in, a, in a covenantal, loving way, the same way Jesus gave his life to me, if that's not where you're at and, and, and you're seeking a relationship for some other reason other than pursuing the possibility of marriage, we, and we could sit here all day and pick specifics, but anything like that is going to end up to a messed up situation. It's not going to go good. There has to be purpose and intentionality. And so many people are hooking up, getting together, whether it's sexual or not, most of the time it ends up there. They, they, they get into this process. There's no intentionality. There's no plan. We're not even thinking about that. I'm simply trying to meet some immediate felt physical need, and it does for a week, but then I'm broken again. I'm lonely again. This person didn't fix everything inside of me. Surprise. And now I'm actually mad at them uh, because the truth is you always demonize whatever you idolize. And so the thing you thought was going to get you out of this, this hellacious life that you're suffering through, whenever you make that another person, uh, you're going to end up hating them because they're going to not be able to satisfy those deep needs. That's the straight-up bottom-line truth. So let's not do that. Um, another bad reason to start a, a romantic relationship is that you like the idea of a wedding. And I know that sounds silly. It sounds silly to me. But guys, it's, that's a real thing. I was, I was listening to the radio the other day, and it's, there's a show. It's one of the highest, most listened-to shows in the tri-state area from a radio station that you all have heard of. And on that station, one of the guests was a divorce lawyer. So they're talking, there's, there's there, everything about this made my blood pressure rise. So there were so many things. However, one thing that really stuck out to me uh, was the fact that they, they mentioned that she had been married three times. And they said, well, what happened with that? Why, why were you married three times? And she's like, you know, I don't know. I just really liked weddings. 
<laughs> right? I'm like, what? Like, you, you, wait, you actually like know that? I would, I would assume most people that that's the case. They haven't like pegged it or else they would stop doing it, right? But it's like, no, it's, marriage is counted as, as so kind of whatever, no sacredness to it, no importance to it, that it's, it's, just, it's just a changing and filing of paperwork when you jump in and out of one that, yeah, I had three weddings I, or three marriages because I liked weddings. That's a bad idea. Now, I realize that's kind of an extreme example. Um, I hope it's an extreme example, but I think for some people... They, they, there is something about, and, there, and, and there's a reason why weddings are beautiful. There's a reason why we all like going to them, because in a really beautiful, sacred way, a, a Christian wedding, it, it represents something our heart is longing for, ultimate reunion with Christ. I mean, that's the way, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and when all this thing comes to its full culmination, there's going to be a wedding party. We're the bride, Jesus is the groom, and it's going to be the best thing ever. I'm looking forward to it. And so we see glimpses of that in, in some of the tradition and the, and the beauty of, of, a, of a wedding ceremony between a man and a woman. So um, there, there's a reason why we like them, um, but also there's some sinister stuff in there too. Like I think people like, some people like being the center of attention. They like wearing nice clothes. They like to dance. Apparently they like buffets. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, they like to dance, but, um, you know, I, I think it's... it's Sitting around fantasizing about a wedding. I, listen, man, if, if it's God's will for you to be joined in a marriage covenant to somebody one day, I, I want you to have a wonderful, beautiful wedding, and I, and I hope I get to come. But if you're sitting around thinking about that a whole lot, and that's like even on the radar of drives as you're thinking about, um, man, I, I'd really like to find somebody <laughs> that will like have a wedding with me. <laughs> you know, like, let, uh, guys, no. Let's not. Let's not do that. That's a bad reason, okay? Um, let's, let's submit that to the Lord and, and ask him to help us with it, because that is, that is not a good motivation, okay? So those are some bad reasons, uh, most of them centered around kind of a lack of intention, a lack of thinking through what we're doing, uh, and just kind of trying to meet some need or some, you know, some ache that we have inside of us that it's, it's not going to work. So here's, here's a good reason to pursue a friendship for the purpose of exploring the possibility of marriage. And, and honestly, there's, there's only one that I came up with. Um, there's one good reason to pursue a friendship with someone and, and, and to explore the possibility of marriage with them. Because you are ready to give yourself to a life of loving service to another person in the covenant of marriage. There's one reason why you should even be thinking about entering into a by my preference, courtship, relationship with somebody. Uh, and that would be that because you're ready to lay down your life, because you need to go read Ephesians 5 and, and, and think about what it is the call is to those who are married there to determine whether or not you should even begin the process of looking for someone to build a friendship with and explore whether they could be a spouse for you, right? You gotta get, you gotta get past the first part, which is, Cultural expectation, cultural pressure, my own pressure, my insecurities, all the kinds of things that are driving me towards this desire for a relationship. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta by God's help, jump over that and get to, okay, but where's that gonna lead? What's the purpose of that? What's the intention? What's gonna lead to a marriage? What is a marriage? Oh, a marriage is where, you know, you sit and feed each other ice cream all the time and you stare into each other's eyes and it's, it's just, it's always beautiful and you lo and you joke and laugh and you take showers together and it's just bliss. It's all bliss. Nope. <laughs> nope. Not what it looks like. 
Um, and the only way a marriage is going to work is if two people come together with the same mind that Christ had. I, I'd like to figure out if I should be looking at a dating slash courtship relationship. Okay, ask yourself this. Are you ready, are you excited about the idea of laying down your preferences, laying down your life, laying down everything that you are every single day in love and preferential service to another person the way Jesus laid his life down for you? Are you excited about that idea right there? That's what you need to be asking yourself in determining is now a good time to be looking around and or pursuing somebody and exploring whether or not they could be a husband or wife for me. Now, I told you at the beginning... I was giving you good stuff because the hard stuff was coming. If you didn't take advantage of the good stuff earlier, that's on you, all right? That's, but that's the truth. That's the truth. Any other motivation's got, the well is poisoned. Any other motivation, man, it's, it's going to lead to broken stuff. Now, I need to say this. this. There's a quandary for me because most of you are sitting here um, either already married or very vibrantly aware of many marriages that you could with a lot of certainty say, I don't think that marriage started that way, like you're describing, but it worked out okay. Listen, I want to say, I understand that God's grace is available to redeem broken things. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. I'm talking about best case scenario, least amount of pain for you, most amount of glory for God. Okay? So just because broken stuff does end up Leading to God's glory doesn't mean we should shoot for broken stuff. Yeah. Right? Amen. Okay. <clears throat> we set the bar high. We set the bar at Jesus. Shoot for that. Know that in some ways, invariably, we're not going to quite make that, but at least let's not shoot for tragic cultural norms and then get whatever, you know, and then not even hit that, right? <laughs> That hurts. Okay, um, I want to say to you that some of you may not even think it's possible for kind of what I laid out earlier to happen, and I just want to say that I had an experience recently that encouraged me more as a pastor and a leader among God's people than maybe as much as probably anything else I've ever experienced. Um, because earlier I told you that I, I realized it's, it's, you know, not everybody has a situation where you know, somebody's going to be able to come over uh, to, you know, to a girl's house and the family's going to be there and everybody's going to eat cookies and we're going to ask good questions and, you know, it's, it, it's, it may not go like that for everyone, right? So I understand that, but however, that doesn't mean still doing the cultural norm of, you know, um, let's go off by ourselves and kind of hope for the best. I, I also don't think that's the best case scenario. So I think church community, I think accountability, having friends around you, having leaders around you, that can serve in that place. You know, gospel family is real and it matters and this is one of the places where it comes into play. And so uh, recently, two people in their 20s um, called me and asked me for a meeting and what they wanted to meet about. This is, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna describe something to you that's gonna be roughly like seeing a, a leprechaun riding a unicorn across a rainbow. It, like just, you wouldn't think it would happen. You wouldn't think you'd see it. But two people in their 20s called me, and they wanted to meet with me because they knew that they were interested in each other, and they were thinking about pursuing uh, the, the, 
ex, you know, pursuing a friendship and exploring the possibility of marriage, and they wanted to sit down and talk to somebody and have them sit down with a Bible and lay out for them some godly wisdom for how to approach that process. <laughs> I, I was like, is this a prank? You know what I mean? Like, th- that, re- that really happened. Um, and honestly, it's, I'm, I'm joking, and, and, and in various forms that has happened before, but this was so... Um, it was just the, the motives of it were so pure and it was so godly that I, it honestly, it blessed me so much. It like gave me hope for the future. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to happen, Jesus, thank you. Um, and so I just, I just want to say to you that there are people that don't think that's cultish and weird. And I understand for some of you, it sounds like what I'm saying is we want to be in your business. Listen, man, I don't want to be in your business. I got enough of my own business to deal with, okay? And a bunch of other people's business that I'm already handling. So I don't need more of being in people's business, but what I do is, is I do love you, and we do have a whole host of leaders and other people here that, that love you, and if, if, you're, if you're looking at the possibility of, of coming into a relationship that, that has the, the, the potential and you're exploring towards marriage, man, it, it is like a minefield. There's a lot of ways it can, it can end up hurting, and, and just because there's accountability and just because God's involved and just because you check your motives from the beginning doesn't mean it's, there's, there's a, a guarantee there's going to be no hurt whatsoever out of the situation, but there's still a best-case scenario, and then there's a bunch of other really terrible options that most people are taking most of the time they go at this. Okay, does that make sense? And so I'm just saying, man... Um, there is help. There is wisdom available from God, and there are people that are willing to speak into the situation and watch out for you because we do go deaf and dumb sometimes. We will look over things. We will not understand. We will forget things about ourselves, and we will not see things about them, and we will get caught in webs that we never thought we would, and it ends up in pain, and it ends up taking away our ability to have that element of our life, that relationship, be a reflection of God's goodness and glory. It doesn't reflect well the fact that God has uh, changed us and is involved in our lives in, a, in an intimate way. So um, I think what those two people did, calling and asking somebody to love them enough to speak plain, hard truth to them about what they should be thinking about from the scriptures was real, real, real smart. And I would, I would commit that to anybody that finds himself in that situation. And listen, I'm trying to really emphasize this. It doesn't have to be me. There's a bunch of people here that have gone before you and have a Bible in their hand and, and would be happy to sit down and talk with you about these things, okay? So you, you don't have to feel like, well, he's busy. I don't want to bother. No, man, don't do this on your own. Don't go at it by yourself. It'll go bad. It can go better than that, promise, okay? The key to all of this is intention, We have to ask ourselves when it comes to these things, what are you trying to accomplish and why? It's mind-blowing how many people will enter into an emotionally entangled relationship with another human and never ask themselves, why am I doing this? (laughs) Is that not right? Am I right or wrong? I mean, sometimes, sometimes the prerequisite is they look good. And based on their body language, they think I look good. Boom! We're in there, right? That's all the questions we ask. Ah, stop, right? At least there's a lot more things you could say, but at least stop, friend, and say, why am I doing this? And what would the purpose be? (laughs) 
minimally as a baseline. That's, I mean, if you come out of here and you get that, that gets written upon the tablet of your heart and you can implement that into this process, you'll be far and above better than where you were if it was, you know, hey, they're there and they have a pulse, you know? And so do I. <laughs> Let's make this work, okay? What are you trying to accomplish and why? For so many people, it's just assumed that they should be on the constant lookout for someone to be in a relationship with. Is that not the cultural pressure, friends? Is it not that there's something strange if you're not in a relationship? Well, there must be something wrong with you, or blah da da da. And it's all lies from the devil. There's this there's this belief that you have to be on the constant lookout, um, and and that's, and that's not the case. You, you don't need to be you know radar up all the time. Uh, and the problem is, a lot of people believe that. A lot of their identity is tied, uh, just like people early on, you know, when dating was just first coming on and it was a real big popularity thing, they, maybe they don't think about it like that. They have a, a pseudo more mature approach to it, but still deep in them, there's, there's ingrained these, these insecurities and, and identity issues that, that, you know, man, if, if nobody wants me, then what am I worth? And of course, we've, we've dealt with how the gospel crushes that line to a, a billion little pieces and, and it blows away in the wind. So uh, I'm thankful for that. Okay. Um, so the key is intention. The, the scriptures compare the marriages of God's people to the marriage between Jesus and his bride, which is the church. So we need to at least think about what it looked like for Jesus to pursue us and see if our pursuit of a spouse reflects that in any way. Right? You got me? Jesus and the church, that's the Bible... The Bible compares Christian marriage to Jesus' relationship with us, okay? So that's, that's what we're heading towards. And so minimally, there should be some shadow of the way Jesus pursued us, his bride, and the way we pursue one another as, as a spouse, okay? So for example, I'll give you one. one. One way you can kind of compare one element of Jesus' pursuit of us that we should probably have implemented in, in ours. Luke 19 uh, shows us there was no ambiguity in what Jesus was doing. Okay? The son of, he said this in Luke 19. The Son of Man has come to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus didn't come and say, yeah, you know, I think I like you. We can hang out. Well, what does that mean? Oh, I don't know. Just hanging out. doesn't mean anything. What do we need a label for? <laughs> no, man. Jesus came and said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. He let us know what he was here to do. See where I'm going with that? Men, especially? Knock it off. Ambiguous, flirtatious, undefined relationships are a source of great confusion for many. If you think that's true, can you say amen just so I know I'm not by myself? Okay, thank you. It's a great source of confusion for many, and confusion is not of God. If you want to build a friendship with someone because you see them as a potential for marriage, get this. Tell them. Tell them what's going on. There's a whole bunch of people that have been strung along and broken over and over again because people were being ambiguous, flirtatious, all this type of stuff is going on, but, but nobody knows what's going on. It happens both ways. I realize that, but it's more often that a guy's doing this to a girl, okay? And that's the kind of guy you want to smack. I do anyways, okay? I don't like that when he treats... My sister's in the Lord like that. No, no, no. Okay? Now, I, I want to be clear on this. I'm not saying that this is a hard and a fast rule, but I just, this, I'm going to give you a biblical norm. The biblical norm should be 
the man stepping up and declaring a desire to pursue friendship with a woman. Okay? That is the biblical norm. I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule. It is the biblical norm. I also want to say this, though. Ladies, that doesn't mean you can't let a guy who may be on the shy side know that if he were to step up, it might go well for him. Okay? <laughs> because here's the, here's the honest truth. Sometimes you girls are so godly and wonderful and pretty that it just intimidates guys. It could still be a good guy, a solid dude, a good Christian brother, but he's just intimidated by you um, because you're just so dang wonderful, okay? So it's okay to let him know if he... If he <laughs> it's okay to let him know that if he were to step up and man up, that it, that might go well for him, okay? But then let him step up and man up, all right? You got me? You feel me on that, all right? Picking up what I'm putting down? You're not supposed to say you feel me from the pulpit, but... I don't know. You know what I meant. Um, now, if, if, the, if the whole... Per I, I do want to say this, though, in, in that vein. However, if the whole purpose is to explore the possibility of marriage, if that's what we're doing, then right from the jump, the man needs to show that he's got the spine to love and lead a wife and a family spiritually. Okay? That's why I'm saying the biblical norm is there, and I think just practically it makes sense that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be this... I, I don't... The biblical norm is it shouldn't be a, the, that the, the woman has to be hard pursuing after the guy and trying to kind of drag this jelly spine guy along. He needs to, he, he may need a little help from you. He may need kind of a hint that, you know, if he does man up, it'll, it'll go okay. But, but it should be, the, the biblical norm is, you, ladies, you want a guy that's going to have the spine to stand and lead your family, fight devils, you know, earn a living and do everything that it's going to take to to be a good, godly, servant-hearted husband for you. So, uh, you know, look out for that in the beginning. You shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to do the whole thing. Um, biblical norms should be a man stepping up and declaring a desire to pursue a friendship with a woman and explore the possibility of marriage, okay? I don't know who's mad about that or what. Yell at the Bible, okay? Don't yell at me. Um, <clears throat> so if, if we're looking at... Uh, if we're looking at Jesus and the way he pursued us as an example, right, um, and, and maybe how we should pursue each other, one thing we also need to see, so first of all, there was no ambiguity. We knew what he was doing. We knew what was going on. Secondly, he didn't come to get something from us, but to give himself completely to us. And guys, this is huge, right? This, this, is, this is how the gospel affects this process. We need to understand the way Jesus pursued us was not to come into the situation and see what he could get from us. The exact total opposite is the case. The God of the universe takes on flesh, is born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, and then goes and allows himself to be tortured and murdered like a thief, hangs upon a cross, and bleeds out for us, rises from the grave, declares victory, allows us to share in it. He didn't come to take from us. He came only to give. And that's the deal. For a marriage to work and for a relationship that may lead up to a marriage to be glorifying to God, to be joyful for the people involved, and to be healthy, it needs to be two people looking to come at each other the way Jesus came at us. Not coming with a what can you do for me attitude, but coming with a how can I serve and love you and push you closer to the God that made you. So you need to look at yourself when it comes to that, if you're in a relationship now or, or will, will be at some point, is that the way you're approaching it? And it's also a good indicator and thing to look for in somebody else. And here's what I'm saying, guys. 
Somebody that you may look at across the room and not know, that you may not initially say, that's my type, or however you think about that. You're not physically attracted to them, but you, you, you hang out with them in groups, you, you get to know them, you see them serve other people, you serve God with them, uh, you, you see the heart that they have for God, you see them being like a Rebecca, just, just almost unbelievably hospitable and beautiful towards people. And, and, and I'm just telling you, there's, there's this potential for uh, what you deem attractive to change. That person can become beautiful in your eyes. And so I'm not saying everybody needs to go try to find some ugly person and do an ugly duckling story. That's not, that's not my point. I'm just saying don't let the way you navigate this thing, uh, don't let yourself off the hook at what am I attracted to. Push yourself about what drives your attractions, okay? Because a godly person should be attractive. A loving person, a, a, a gospel-centered person, somebody that's looking to serve instead of be served, that should be attractive. The process of getting to know one another to explore the possibility of marriage should be marked with the kind of servant-hearted, God-honoring, sacrificial love it takes for a marriage to be a holy reflection of God's incredible goodness. If this is the case, the godly friendship that leads to marriage can be as much a reflection of the love of Christ to the world as the marriage is. And that's what we're talking about through this entire series, whether it's in singleness, whether it's in the pursuit of marriage, whether it's in marriage, in issues regarding sexuality. How is it in every way we are not only considering what we think is best for us, but ultimately what reflects to the world that God has done something in us? What points the world in the way we do these things differently to the fact that our God is real, our God is powerful, he has changed us, and that his principles are true. How can we be holy reflections of the goodness and love of God? Well, doing these things differently is, is definitely a huge way. May we be a people who are intentional in all we do, but especially when it comes to relationships. May we be a people who assess our motives in every situation, Asking God to help us discern not only what we do, but why we do it. And may we be a people who, by doing relationships differently, reflect the beauty and love of our Savior King to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that a, that a story from 4,000 years ago speaks to us today. Thank you that we can look at how it is you guided Abraham's servant to find Rebecca. And, and as the story goes on, we know, Lord, that, that you use that, that union and that marriage. But just the, the, the beauty of you being involved in these details, the marriage of two humans, when, when we understand the cosmic level of your greatness, the fact that you literally hold all of the universe within the palm of your hands, when we think about how big you are, it's amazing to us that you concern yourself with something so trivial as the joining together of, of two men humans, and yet, God, you are intimately involved, and you have poured forth from your scriptures so much wisdom for us to be able to apply to this, to avoid the, the incredible amount of pain that can come in thinking about these things incorrectly. And so, God, we thank you for your word. Without your word, we would just have to go with the flow and, and fall prey to the tide of delusion and confusion and sin and dirtiness that surrounds these things for much of our culture, and for much of cultures throughout time, really. Thank you, God, that we do have an opportunity to see these things differently. Thank you that your wisdom speaks to us, God, and it pulls us out of the traps. Thank you, God, that we can lean heavily on your Holy Spirit and discernment, that you can teach us how to look at people differently. 
Thank you, God, that you have printed us out, God, this, this blueprint for friendship, uh, God-centered, gospel-centered friendship, and that, that, that through that process we, we can get to know somebody. And it doesn't have to have all the pressures of societal expectations, but God, we can just genuinely enjoy somebody's friendship. And then, and then we have this beautiful opportunity to, to just be their friend if that's what we discover is there. Or if we discover that it is, in fact, God, that you are, you are bringing this thing together for the purpose of a covenant marriage between two people, we can joyfully partake in that. I just, I just thank you, God, that you do have a plan regarding these things. I thank you that you have wisdom to share. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and pursued us and you gave us some some beautiful examples of how to treat each other when it comes to these things. Thank you that you served. Thank you that you gave. Thank you that you weren't ambiguous about what you were doing. Thank you that you said exactly what you intended. And I thank you that you've loved us perfectly in all these things. Help us, Lord, to reflect your perfect love in the way that we do relationships. We need your help, Lord. It's, it's not easy. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.